It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to an election special podcast extra from the New Statesman. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and I'm going to be talking to George Eaton and Stephen Bush about what went wrong for Labour. The results were incredibly unexpected, both for people in the Tory and Labour camps and also for Lib Dems too. And there's plenty to chew over this week as we look to a Labour leadership election. After the defeat, the post-mortem. After Labour comprehensively lost the 2015 election and the Lib Dems collapsed too, plus UKIP lost its leader, what next? I'm joined by a politics editor, George Eaton, and editor of the Stagger, Stephen Bush, to analyse all the fallout from Thursday night's results. George, let's go back first to the the scale of Labour's defeat, really, one which no one in the party was expecting. In a perverse way, does that make it easier to move on? Yes, I think it does, because the defeat not just in Scotland, but in England, was so decisive that um, no one in the party can say we just needed one more heave, we would have got there. Had it not been for Scotland, uh, we could have got over the line. Um, The fact that the Conservatives have won a majority now means that everyone recognises there needs to be a profound rethinking of what the party stands for and why it lost so badly, even if they don't disagree um, necessarily about what that involves. Well, what's striking is initially the degree of consensus among all of those who have put themselves forward for the leadership, Chucko Amuna, Tristram Hunt, Liz Kendall, all of them saying we need to do more to appeal to aspirational voters, we have to avoid being seen as anti-business, we need a more optimistic message, we need to speak more about education. So let's um, start with the first of those. Um, Chucko Amuna, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with him and his background, you interviewed him not long before the election, where to his credit, he did edge towards some of these positions that he's more you know, he's free to much more fully espouse now. Yes, so he was already differentiating himself from Ed Miliband in many ways, and he was an original supporter of Ed Miliband, but has been on a sort of political and ideological journey since. He was emphasising the need to have a much greater emphasis on fiscal discipline. He was emphasising the need to avoid appearing too dogmatic or ideological, saying I didn't come into politics to tax people. He was talking about the need to emphasise wealth creation rather than merely wealth distribution. Um, And all of that means that he actually has quite a clear account of why Labour lost and what it needs to do to change. Um, The question is whether 
that will appeal to uh, to those who decide the outcome, which is Labour activists. And to look a bit at his, his background, his seat is in Streatham, so he's in a London seat. London is the place where Labour did less badly than everywhere else. He's been the business uh, business spokesman. As you say, he came up through sort of compass in the, the left wing of the party, and but was also previously, in a previous life, a lawyer. So, mm. you know, he has been in the kind of corporate world. Stephen, uh, let's move now on to, to Liz Kendall, who's another person who, I mean, she's, to her credit, Andrew Neil went, are you standing? And she went, yeah, <laughs> at the end of an interview. So she has at least um, more than flashed an ankle. She's just definitely come out and said it. What's her background and where does her sort of support come within the party? So um, so Liz Kendall's from a, a, a small village outside uh, Watford. I want to say Abbots Langley. Um, uh, she then, uh, so she's the first person in her family to go to university. She then went to Cambridge. Uh, she then kind of so actually Liz is a bit older than than a lot of that generation. She's actually she's in her forties, so she was part of the same IPPR think tank generation as Ed Miliband, David Miliband, Yvette Cooper. But unlike the rest, who kind of all went into Parliament in the nineties and noughties, she sort of went off, worked for the ambulance um, care, care network, worked for the maternity alliance. Um, so she's sort of. She kind of is from that sort of spad background, but she's kind of done it for longer. And yeah, she's actually run. Yeah, she's run a think tank as opposed to just kind of being a researcher at one. And presuming um, the fact that they're they're health and care think tanks. I mean, she was the care spokesman. Yeah. That helps too because it's not like it's not one of those big abstract kind of foreign affairs or international development or something like that. It's something that is a part of a kind of a key labour message. Yeah, it's sort of a, a tangible issue. Uh, actually, although she ended up with the older care brief. Uh, early years is sort of her kind of big city on a hill which is why so she's kind of yeah kind of she's sort of in some ways I think what some of her supporters are already saying is that she is the person who was saying these things even when they were unfashionable who actually despite being at the health brief which um, is perhaps one of the places where uh, Miliband's Labour Party was at its most sort of you know vote this way to stop the bad Tories was saying actually nuanced things about personal care budgets about devolving power um, yeah and she has kind of the the massive advantage I think out of all of the other candidates that one she can sort of whatever happens if she finishes last she's sort of expected to finish last anything else is sort of a massive victory and she has the um yeah, I was talking to Patricia Hewitt, who she worked for for a long time to write this profile that I've done for her on our website. Check it out. Um, and she says she has a core of steel. And on that note, George, talking about health, um, Andy Burnham is widely expected, Claire, by the time we put this podcast up. Who knows? He may have done. Um, alongside Yvette Cooper. And those are obviously kind of two big beasts from the Shadow Cabinet. Is that going to be an advantage or a disadvantage for them? I think it partly depends on how long the contest is. If it's a short six-week contest, then I think that may give them an edge because they are more experienced, they are better known among activists, um, they have a higher profile. If it's a longer contest, as it was last time, and uh, those from the 2010 generation, Chuka, Tristram Hans, Liz Kendall, have more time to establish themselves, then that will aid them. Um, but and Burnham, to... To the, the point to make about Burnham is that every um, poll that's been done among Labour activists on shadow cabinet rankings, he's always been right at the top. 
Um, Which makes a big difference now because some of the reforms that uh, Ed Miliband brought in about the Labour leadership election do mean that there is there is a significant. So explain to me uh, how the how the Labour leadership election works because the mm. Tories do a thing where they the parliamentary party basically puts two candidates forward to the country you know, to the membership. Right, that's not how it works in Labour. No. So to get on the ballot, you need the support of fifteen percent of the parliamentary Labour Party, which means a maximum of six candidates can go forward. Um, and then it's now a one-member-one-vote system, whereas before it was an electoral college system where a third of the votes were given to um, MPs and MEPs, a third of the votes were given to affiliated trade unions and social societies, and a third of the votes were given to ordinary members. Labour's now finally fallen into line with the Tories and the Lib Dems in having a pure one-member-one-vote system, so you don't have uh, MPs uh, having disproportionate influence, and um, you don't have... Some some individuals with often ten votes because they're by virtue of their membership of multiple unions and societies. But Stephen, doesn't that point up to a, a problem there? One of the reasons I think that the Parliamentary Labour Party always had a problem with Ed Miliband was they felt he wasn't their choice. He was the union candidate. He didn't get a, a majority within the PLP. Are we not heading towards a, potentially a repeat of that situation? Um, no, and this may turn out to be one of those wildly optimistic things I say which comes back to haunt me in two years time. The the big problem with the way Miliband was elected was yeah, he didn't just lose among the the parliamentary party. He lost among the membership. He was imposed on on the, the Labour electorate by the only section that not all of the candidates had equal access to. The Miliband campaign was the only campaign which was given the contact details for the... Uh, Didn't they yeah. send out the voting forms with a yeah. thing in it saying, like, vote for Ed Miliband? Yeah. Which I think um, Nick Watt once on the Sunday Politics said that was the kind of thing that you only normally saw in Iraq. Yeah. Which may have upset a few people. Um, which, um, I mean, I, I was not and am not a, a David Miliband fan, but the, the Miliband people ran a campaign almost designed to irritate their colleagues uh, and the then Ed Miliband the people. Ed Miliband people and uh, and then when they won then didn't really do anything to build any bridges uh, whereas I think then actually this, this is a much better quality of politician we have running uh, this time many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I don't think any of them would behave in as self-destructive a manner and I also think that they would probably they wouldn't have the problem that Ed had which was not his fault which is having shadow cabinet elections because in that first year of course Ed Miliband couldn't pick his shadow cabinet they were picked by a parliamentary party which hadn't voted for him uh, and so the shadow cabinet elections were largely picked by people who voted for David Miliband so it was a cabinet full of David Miliband supporters the next leader will be able to remake the shadow cabinet, so it will be a very, very different atmosphere. From but that is a problem, isn't it, that Ed Miliband had from the start, was that kind of the, the mutual lack of trust between him and, and some of his colleagues. I was talking to someone who's very well placed saying, well, the trouble is I would always kind of, this is a journalist, I would always go to them to try and get their line on something, and that quite often they, wouldn't, they just wouldn't take my call, because once you were kind of deemed to be not on Team Miliband, that was it, you know, you were, you were, you were to be kept at arm's length. Um, but George, it's interesting that we mentioned 
David Miliband, he's due to give a statement later. Is the, the prince across the water going to return? No, I don't think so, because I think it would look rather perverse, uh, <laughs> even by... Didn't uh, like that, Miliband. We've got another yes, one. We've got in, loads in, more. Indeed. And um, I also think you do need, in my view, someone... Um, uh, you know, he's not of that. He's not. He's not of that generation. Some... But doesn't that also prove a problem for Yvette Cooper as a leadership candidate? That standing next to Yvette Cooper would be Ed Ball, somebody who's associated with the economic policies that many people feel rejected. Somebody who themselves lost their seat. I know we sort of say that the personal lives of leaders shouldn't matter too much, but that would be a big albatross around her neck, wouldn't it? It is. It is an obstacle. Although it does help in some ways, although it will have been immensely personally distressing for her that Ed Ball has lost his seat now, which means that she's. He's not going to have to give him a shadow cabinet position. He's not going to be in, in Parliament yeah. at all. And the challenge for Yvette Cooper and Andy Burnham is, to some extent, to reinvent themselves. And it's a difficult thing to do in politics. But there are examples of, of politicians achieving it. You look at how George Osborne has transformed himself. It's very true. Um, um, and then to mention the other the other kind of couple of names that have been uh, going around. So Tristram Hunt, who has been the school spokesman, his seat is in the Midlands. Um, he's been relatively quiet, hasn't he, Stephen? Because schools were not a big part of uh, Labour's election manifesto. Or yeah. not even a part at all, really, as far as I can see. Yeah, I mean, yeah, education was one of those odd areas like international development that Ed Miliband didn't seem that interested in, despite, in both cases, being what you'd, you know, quite strongly linked to his core themes of inequality, building the skills base, etc., etc., um, and Tristram Hunt like, largely fails to carve out any kind of distinctive Labour voice on schools. The argument in his defence is so did Stephen Twigg and Andy Burnham. Um, so, you know, you can argue about to what extent that's an Ed problem and a Tristram Hunt problem. I suppose the argument is also that although that Labour started the Academy's programme, so therefore the idea of, of more governance, self-governance for schools is, is kind of a popular one and one they're associated with, that was sort of turned toxic with teachers by... Michael Gove turning it into his own personal kind of, you know, Bolshevik crusade. So it was very difficult for them to recover them with the, with the parent-led academies and, and sort of talk about how they were different to the hated free schools, really. Yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, sorry, I regret asking this. This is one of my hobby horses when a certain type of right-wing commentator talks about our great minister Michael Gove was. He turned a popular agenda into an unpopular one. He didn't change any policies, he just irritated lots of people. It's not a good minister. Well, this is what I think he's going to do at justice, isn't he? This is the thing is, I think he's incapable of... If you gave that brief to Theresa May, she would very silently smother with a pillow the Human Rights Act, and it would just be... It would be done. But Michael Gove cannot resist. It will turn into a grand culture war where, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's sort of little Johnism on steroids. And some might argue that perhaps that's not necessarily the most efficient way of going. I mean, what's most interesting from a journalistic point of view, Michael Gove is a journalist, is not necessarily the most efficient policy regime, perhaps. Um, One final thing to finish, uh, George, is that Dan Jarvis, who we profiled in the magazine a few months ago, former major in uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and maybe just Afghanistan. Um, Zan went running with him. Uh, he's a very incredibly fit guy. Uh, three children. He lost his wife um, and has since remarried. Uh, he's got a, a, both a compelling personal story and uh, also, you know, was was kind of seen as being the, the antidote to Milibandism. But he's decided to rule himself out. Um, do you think that's a that's a shame, or do you think that was an inevitable re- kind of response to the fact that he was just not that well known yet in the party? I think it is a shame because he does have this fantastic backstory and has clear potential, and um, everyone in Labour who recognises his talents has been was waiting for him to flesh out his agenda to see what he really stands for in terms of 
policy and, and strategy. And I think even if he hadn't won, a leadership election would have been a good training for him. Um, but he's chosen not to stand so that he can uh, devote himself at this time to his family, um, his two children, and him did suffer the, the tragedy of, of, as you said, of losing their mother. And um, I thought his statement on that was very moving. So he said, my children lost their mother. I don't want them to lose their father as well. Yes. Mm. And one of the things that I think I've, I've come to appreciate more and more during this last election campaign is just how incredibly personally taxing it is on, on politicians, particularly for all of those who either you know did the campaign and didn't get any sleep and then now are trying to launch leadership campaigns or those who are now in in government really it's kind of slightly mad thing that you you do this kind of stuff and then you're kind of the race isn't isn't over are you expecting to see any other names come out of the the woodwork george not for the not for the leadership at least not someone i think could um could get on the ballot paper and it's worth saying that it's it shouldn't be assumed that the five remaining contenders will all be able to get on the ballot paper um, the, th- the threshold is slightly higher than last time. It's 15% now. It's, it's not uh, 12.5%. And in terms of the deputy role, so Harriet mm. Harman is, is now said that she's also going to stand on when she's finished being caretaker leader. Uh, Angela Eagles declared herself for that. Tom Watson is crowdfunding a campaign. Has anyone else? Um, Caroline, Caroline Flint. Flint. Yeah. Uh, and any early thoughts on any of those? Well, I think Tom Watson will have a big advantage. He's incredibly popular with the activists. During the election campaign, he visited more than 100 constituencies. Um, and I think, particularly if it looks likely that Labour will opt for um, a reformist leader, then Tom Watson would be seen as uh, as a counterbalance to that, as someone who is... Uh, so he's uh, not uh, quite the Prescott, but he's got, you know, he would be the... Yes, yeah, someone who has strong, other ties, side of strong the... ties to the unions and strong ties to, to the party's left-wing activists. I think the, 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 the question for Tom Watson is, he can obviously rebrand himself as a Prescott figure, Prescott, yeah, one of his great strengths was he was willing to be the midwife and the honest broker, both between Blair and Brown and between Blair and Brown and the union base. Yeah, I mean, one MP, yeah, who is from that brown wing of the party said, I like Tom, but the problem, they said to me, is he has grudges older than you are. And if Tom Watson can prove that he can genuinely build bridges, then I think he would be an excellent counterweight to Amuna or Kendall as the modernising leadership. If we have the Tom Watson we had uh, as campaign coordinator, uh, I think it's bad for the left. And there's also a problem with his relationship with the press, obviously Mm. having been involved in uh, Leveson, and he's he's not a big fan of News International, and I believe that News International are not big fans of him. Uh, And he also similarly doesn't like the the Daily Mail. After we had this whole argument during the campaign about whether or not other papers are relevant, I think fewer people are willing to make that argument now. That would be, I think he would have to sort of swallow his pride on on some of that because you can't, it turns out, have a Labour Party at all out war with the the printed press. Yeah, and the thing is, he's, I think, yeah, he is the the most talented politician of, of the three. Uh, so I think, yeah, he, he can have this huge and influential role. The question is, as you say, whether he's willing to swallow his pride. And he's the only one who was willing to talk to me about um, the latest Batman game, so he has that going in his favour too. Um, well, I'm sure we'll, we'll bring you more of this later in the week, but for now I'll say thank you to Stephen and George. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. (laughs) 
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. So, Robert, tell the people what's a pretendian. It's just what it sounds like, Angel. A pretend Indian. Someone who fakes being one of us. Someone who impersonates a native. We're talking about real scammers and con artists. There are pretendians teaching at universities, pretendians running governments, pretendians in Hollywood. On our new podcast, Pretendians, we'll tell you the incredible story of these jaw-dropping frauds. Who are they? Why do they do it? And how the heck do they keep getting away with it? Listen to Pretendians on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.